This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Friendship is often fluid. We often collect friends from school times, through different jobs, and then with families. But do you have a best friend? In contrast, Margaret Beerman's book is called We Were Never Friends. Welcome, Margaret. Hello, thanks, Jan. The book starts with Lottie returning to Canberra. What is she doing now? So Lottie is now a surgical trainee and her job is to get through the last six months of training just to get through that last rotation to survive so that she will finish her program. It's a very intense period for a training for a, for a surgical trainee but that's sort of a minor part that's that's a, the it is the a minor part but you feel her aloneness there's mm. no one that she can talk with mm. and now she's returned to Canberra to do this last stint mm. and the memories come flooding back of a year and a half that she spent in Canberra prior so when was that so that was um in you know, counted by school years in grade six and grade seven. And um, she's remembering how she moved with her family. Her father's, um, at that stage, was a was an emerging artist and certainly by the time much later became an absolutely famous, fated artist. Um, and they've moved to Canberra to kind of start a new life as a family. Yes. And, of course, she's school and we get it all from Lottie it's her her although she has got a brother and a sister a younger brother and a sister but it's her grade six and anybody who's had any any knowledge of grade six knows that that's by the time kids really have sorted themselves out there's the popular ones the sporty ones the nerds the middle group and the outcasts Lottie wants to align herself to Larissa now, what group would you say Larissa belongs to? Well, Larissa is that girl, you know, the girl. And mm-hmm. I'm going to use the word blonde advisedly because <laughs> in my observation, both of my own experience and watching my kids, um, there is something rather blonde about that popular child. And it's interesting because we're such a, you know, mixed mixed. Um, community now, but there seems to be something about that blonde Aussie girl that sits at the top of that triangle, and that's Larissa for sure. Well, maybe the other end is Kyla. Mm. Also blonde, but entirely um, not in the same vein. And I think... I, I think the thing about primary school and, and certainly the early years of secondary, I think it fades, is it gives you an opportunity of that huge, at a state school at any rate, huge cross-section. And Kyla is someone who is disenfranchised from the world in every way. And unusually, though, and something I really love about her, she revels in that status. She is mm. an outcast and she just wears it proudly. This is a quote from Margaret Beerman's book. This is talking about, um, oh, this is Lottie, knowing Kyla was almost a head shorter than me, spindly, pale as a grub, her head bent on her skinny little neck. You could hear the breath wheeze in and out of her lungs. She wasn't healthy either. She no. She was skinny. She was... Oh. And she has a bad heart. 
she, yeah, absolutely. And then there's Lottie's parents. The mother is a lawyer. You know, she's a hard-working mm. lawyer. And you just mentioned a bit about George Coates being the artist. Yeah, so, you know, I'm... I, I mean... The, I, and I'm going to go a little off piece. I hope it's okay because I know we're short on time. But the genesis for this book is quite an interesting one. I was at a dinner uh, many, many, many years ago, and it was about some kind of hero. It was a hero dinner, and um, I actually can't remember who the person was anymore. I was there as a plus one, and everyone had gone on and on and on about how amazing this person was, what a difference they'd made to the world. And then his daughter got up on stage and. She basically said something like, he was awful. He was a disgusting excuse for a human being. And um, it was the most sort of (gasps) moment. And um, so I became very interested in this book about people who are amazing but who perhaps are flawed. And I don't know, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I, I don't think, I would never think of, of George, but I never think of any of my characters as being disgusting excuses of human beings. But he's certainly flawed, and I became very interested in, um, I guess, how we um, make cult figures into into these people. And I started writing this book many years ago, many many years ago. So it was really interesting that those think that thinking that I'd been having probably I don't know, you know, mm. eight years ago, the world kind of caught up. And then you're kind of going, oh, I'm still writing this book. And um, But it's really about how when someone's seen as being famous and extraordinary, and in fact is extraordinary, what we um, as people, as a society do with that. Look, it's it's hard to have, you know, children of an artist. The mother, um, the kids, this is Lottie and her siblings and even their mother, know that their father is either very amenable or distant. Mm. He has a rule that no one is allowed in his studio mm. ever. But the kids have seen his finished work of their mother mm. and... You know, they've come to grips with it. So, you know, just explain why that artwork was notable and why the kids, you know, had to come to grips with it. So... um, The first exhibition. Yeah, so... I'm I, I'm not sure which series of paintings you, but the oh, the ones the where the kids are starting with, the ones that you start open with, is that his his famous works, the ones that he takes him to Canberra, are of his wife, wife. the kid's mother, and she's naked, but she's dressed as Madonna, and she's um, she's half Sinhalese. She's very beautiful, but he's a hyper realist. So the paintings are painted with every single imperfection and flaw, but they're also laced through with that sort of visual iconography of the mother, the blue robe, the mm. loving look. Um, but the kids have to come to grips with this contrast. Um, and to see their mother placed on these walls in this very exposing um, mm, fashion. For everyone to see. Yeah, for everyone to see. Look, Lottie's very aware that a father can see someone, and this is quote, but not looking, but drawing somebody in his mind. Mm. Now, what's this got to do with Kyla? So, um, George sees people not as people, 
and this is true with his family and with Kyla. He sees, and every, you know, every person I think that he meets, he sizes them up, he squares them up. And with Kyla, this, um, uh, I don't know how he to, just, she's yeah. just, uh, she's just so malicious and, um, and disenfranchised and angry. He sees her in as, as, in a way that no one else sees her and he sees her, I suppose, her visual potential but also her thematic potential within that. And his wife, Lottie's mum, Mm. sees how hurt she is Mm. and says, well, maybe you can stay for a night. Yeah. But this night turns into a month. Yeah. And it's Kyla who disappears down into the studio where nobody else is allowed to go. And, of course, Lottie doesn't want her friends at school to know that she's got Kyla living Mm. at her house and Mm. they're even associated in any way. So she actually even ostracises Kyla more. Mm. (laughs) You've got into this whole, excuse me, bitchiness (laughs) of teenage or, you know, these young girls so well. Mm. (laughs) I think you've lived it. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, did I live it. I lived it and I remember observing it as a child and thinking, why are people talking to each other like that? And then kind of working it out and kind of, oh, just to my shame, you know, giving it a go. Maybe if I speak to someone else like that, then people will like me more, Um, you know, and... and Finding out that didn't really work. Yeah. Not for me, at any rate. Well, let's let's just go back to the book. Part mm. one, visitors, because mm. we have the book in five different parts given names. Well, Lottie's parents are constantly having visitors. Mm. Well, let's just hear a little bit from page 10. As I was falling asleep, I heard car, a car pull up and the clamour of voices. Dad's crowd. Mum called them his acolytes. In Sydney, they came round almost every night, middle-aged women wearing wafting dresses and earnest art students bearing wine and dips and pita bread that would harden as the night went on. Often, there was a smell of what Dad called herbal cigarettes. If Mum was distracted, we kids went unchecked, foraging for leftovers in the kitchen until midnight. Mm-hmm. At one of these parties, Lottie and Carla witnessed their father's sexual indiscretion. And Carla appears to know a lot for her age. But Lottie and her brother and sister are aware of their parents having problems. Their mother Claire constantly placates while George has anxiety of being an artist with high expectations from an adoring public. So part two, we have the exhibition. The realisation of the subject of the painting. Now, here my thoughts went to the publicity that Bill Henson got with that photograph of the nude who was only 14 and this whole question of what is art? Yeah, I mean, absolutely fascinating question and I I live in St Kilda East so actually the Bill Henson... um, uh, um, media was very, very, very mm. close to home for us. Um, and I found that, um, and I still find it quite a fascinating question. I have, um, because it is, it is, it raises those uncomfortable notions of what it, what is acceptable to do for art, 
and who determines that and how do you know? I think you summed it up beautifully with Lottie's grandmother, who's such a different person Mm. to Lottie's father. (laughs) And uh, in her words, people need to do the right thing in life, not the thing is right for them. Mm. And look, the other thing of that, uh, the Sri Lankan granny who cooks curries and gave religious advice, and, but it was her house that was perfumed with a hint of rising damp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, look, it, it, it was such a good book. We, there's too much in the plot to, to take it. You really have to read it, go with it, think about how Lottie, she was young, and I think we're all we we are all grown older, and how we would change things. Well, who leaves us with the most memories? Is that friends, or is it our family, or is it a situation that you'd rather alter the outcome of? If you could relive it again, and can art rekindle a memory? Margaret Bierman's book tells of an artist's and how his choice of subject had such a profound effect on his family in We Are Never Friends. Oh, Margaret, well done. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, believe it or not, art and sex feature in uh, the book I have today, as does love, consent and gender identity. They're all at the core of Sophie Hardcastle's novel, Below Deck. So, Sophie, welcome to 3CR. Mm, Thank you for having me. Now, our first encounter with Olivia, who's our protagonist, is a kidnapping of sorts. It's, on the one hand, humorous, but there's an underlying threat there as well. It is, and I I really wanted to write a scene from the outset that kind of sets up where where is this going? Because I feel like anybody that knows, uh, you know, has read the synopsis knows that this is a story about consent and about the choices that we make and don't make, and it is, the synopsis is quite ominous I think um well the one of the lines that struck me very early on I feel under my dress and I've got undies on so Olivia's mm. actually had a night on the town but all of a sudden that raises the specter of someone being taken advantage of um and not being aware of uh surroundings uh you're very much in danger in those situations and they seem to be all too common today Absolutely. And I wanted the reader, I wanted the reader to sort of take themselves to that place and be imagining what had happened. Um, And I think probably for young women, they would like, uh, you know, would would be, um, would read that situation maybe in like a, I don't know, would be more acutely aware of of that danger, perhaps. I think Um, men are aware of it. Unfortunately, men are perpetrators in such instances so it's 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 a common part of the discourse mm, today in, mm-hmm. in the lives of young men and women but it's humorous because there's this meeting with mac which leads to maggie who become very much uh important people in her life yeah as well. this is true so, oh, sorry <laughs> um but this section of the novel, Sea Garden, uh, she's taken on board Mac's boat, etc., and that becomes a sort of um, motif that goes all the way through the book. But there are constraints in her life in this section. There's her boyfriend, Adam, mm-hmm. and her father. And they're both struggling in many ways with uh, facing a woman, Olivia, who's forthright and independent. 
Firstly, Adam um, finds himself almost competing with Olivia for the internship. He is, um, and I think his ego is definitely bruised when uh, she gets kind of ahead of him in that way. And I think the Ollie's father and uh, and her boyfriend Adam they really are kind of like the um, like worst of um, male entitlement, um, like the kind of worst of white male privilege. Um, but then yeah. how women, or young women especially, cope with this. We were having an argument, though perhaps what I mean was that Adam was having an argument with Adam and I was both between and outside. Mm. So where women stand in the, in the light of this. But then um, a domineering father, put the dress on, Olivia, he says over the top of my mother's next sentence, your outfit is inappropriate, end of conversation. Mm. Just, just basically blunt and domineering. But um, Mac and Maggie become substitute parents. They do. And I think Mac, uh, Mac's really interesting for me to write um, because he does model a very different type of masculinity um, that is open and generous and respectful. And, you know, like he's a completely different man in Ollie's life to her boyfriend and to her father. And Ollie's challenge is to negotiate all of these relationships which impact on her life which brings me then to perhaps the most challenging section mm. of uh, the text um, the reader's going to have to find out what Ollie does with the internship but she finds herself on a boat sailing to New Zealand um, etc. There are four other men on board and this raises all sorts of uh, issues and questions about entitlement, acquiescence, consent, male bravado, male dismissiveness. Mm -hmm. How much can you tell us about this section? Because it's beautifully written in terms of what it addresses. There's a challenge for you. <laughs> there we go. I think, I mean, so the book deals with gender-based violence and sexual violence, um, in particular against women. And I think, like, I I was talking about it with somebody yesterday that I think the book for me was more about writing about climate change and the way um, like our like systems and the way that we like operate and function as humans have sort of like caused this like immense violence on non-human spaces. And then the way that the uh, men that are on this boat with Ollie, the way that they're sailing and sort of interacting with the world around them is very much like they're trying to control the wind. They don't listen. They don't surrender to the elements. They're not sort of participating in this ecosystem. They are like very much trying to dominate it. And the way that they like interact with Ollie is also dominating her body. Well, they gang up on her mm. at one stage. And so even those that consider themselves... Um, sort of more uh, mature, still go along with yeah. um, that male bravado, uh, even though they could take action, um, they don't. Uh, and yet it's Ollie that actually knows, because the boys break the boom, uh, mm. mm -hmm. it's Ollie that knows what's happened and, and what the problem was and had they listened to her. But you've got all the myths of, you know, taking women to sea and... And women all, and bad luck at sea, And all apparently. of these sorts of things yeah. going on there. Um, but it really um, is um, a very interesting evocation of 
uh, how women cope in those situations mm. and uh, male entitlement. I don't want to say anything more because I think the reader needs to discover that for themselves. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, well, can I say beautifully written, um, tellingly written, uh, that whole encounter there. But we next find Ollie uh, working in a gallery in England and she's formed a relationship with Hugo. And Hugo mm-hmm. is, in fact, um, well, he's got his own weaknesses, shall we say. He's a he's flawed. Uh, he's a yeah. flawed character, yeah. uh, etc. And the relationship is going on very well, but then it's not. Mm. And it's as if the past is haunting Ollie. It is, and I think those memories haunt her in her body. Um, that even if she's not consciously thinking about it, like she's done her very best to suppress all of those memories, but they live on in her body and they sort of resurface and bubble up. Um, And that then plays out or like influences her relationships that she's trying and her relationship that she's trying to forge with Hugo um, and kind of undoes that from the inside. Um, Yeah. And we can bring in art here as well um, because you in fact do make uh, reference to Eve Klein's IKB 79, Mm. and I notice you're wearing a blue jacket. (laughs) That painting, I had to look it up, Mm -hmm. but what is that painting? So it's a blue monochrome. Um, Eve Klein painted that colour, so he for a long time was the only person that was allowed to use that colour. And Rebecca Sornet, who's one of my favourite authors, wrote this incredible essay about the painting, and she describes that no matter how close and palpable and close up that canvas is and how close that colour is, the blue is always about distance and longing. And I kind of, like, I was really interested in that painting and then also as the ocean being its own site for yearning um, and its own blue monochrome when you're at sea and surrounded by nothing but blue. Mm. The blue is always about distance, something absent, looking Mm. for ways of filling that void. But this now then gets us to the final section where you do, in fact, bring everything together, including that environmental concern, because she's on an expedition, an art expedition in many ways, of artists going to Antarctica. And Jan might be able to identify (laughs) this. Jan's just come back from a trip to Antarctica. Behind us, the earth is uneven, mounds beneath grass, like a green sheet laid over sleeping bodies. Martin tells us that if you if you dug down into the mounds, you'd dig through thousands of years of history. And so there's a layering of uh, experience of events as similar to what you've been mentioning about the events that are accumulated in our lives mm. and therefore... It never disappears. But that allows you then to bring in the indigenous, the environment, all of those concerns. So what does the Antarctic represent and how have you used it? Also, I think the stories that Ollie's learning when she is in Ushuaia, when she's hearing these stories about the indigenous and First Nations peoples of that area, that that is kind of showing her like a very different way of Um, thinking about the environment or what she sort of grew up with in this family that was sort of like an embodiment of like Western capitalism. 
Um, and then when she goes to Antarctica, I have I so I did a residency there to research this book, and I had this obsession with the ancient ice as being like kind of a library of stories because you have all of these tiny pockets of air that tell the story of distant worlds. And I loved this idea that all of these stories that are frozen in the ice, when the glaciers carve, they break off and they all return to the sea and all these stories kind of blend together and, um, yeah, and are mixing in this great pool. And um, and so there's this, for me uh, and for Ollie going to Antarctica, it was very much about those stories that are sort of deep inside her body breaking off and like returning to the sea and it all sort of um yeah shedding that skin almost well that's what everybody has in their life span in many Mm. ways that Mm -hmm. accumulation of events that influence and affect the decisions they make and so as with hugo Um, It was events that have occurred previously that have affected her relationship then. So that challenge then of dealing with one's gender, one's identity, is not just about the moment. Mm. It's about that expanse of experience that one has had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so now the synesthesia then, moving on to the style. We've got a few minutes left. The way you've uh, used... Uh, colour here, the reds and the blues and the way you describe things. You don't have synesthesia yourself, do you? I do. You do? Yeah. What's that like? As in, how do you perceive? I hear sound in colour. Um, And so this was the first time I'd ever written kind of through my synesthesia. Um, But I'd been making art for a year before I started writing this book where I was making paintings, uh, painting glaciers, based off the colours that I would hear when I heard them carving. So I was painting all of these pink glaciers to try and sort of make sense of my experiences in Antarctica. And then when I went to write this book, I just kind of naturally fell into writing about Ollie's pain and her world through that colour. And yeah, it felt very natural for me to write in that way because that's very much how I experience the world. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I hope it rings true. Because, oh, yeah. Indeed. Uh, and so I should have selected a passage to do that. Um, I'm just sort of opening it random, but that never works. I should have <laughs> pulled one out especially. But we get Ollie's experience, therefore, uh, truly and uniquely in mm. that regard of this individual uh, growing in life and trying to find uh, herself you also then have this spectre of a well, a death going through mm-hmm. the book. Probably shouldn't give too much away there either. But there's the prologue talks about Ollie uh, perceiving that she may in fact die. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of death would be uh, interesting for the reader to discover and explore uh, in reading the book. So there's a hint or a suggestion here about uh, what there is to discover, but it is about sexual identity, uh, about one's experience. The novel is Below Deck. It's your first novel. For adults. For it's adults. It's my third book. Our third book, but first for adults. Um, and it's uh, entitled Below Deck, the author's Sophie Hardcastle, and it's an Alan and Unwin release, so thank it you. It is. 
very much for today, and, Sophie. Uh, yes, you said sex and art. Well, well, and sex in both stories today. It's <laughs> oh, amazing. Art. <laughs> okay, and I was speaking with Margaret Beerman about her book, We Were Never Friends. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.